Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is Bookin, brought to you by Quill Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Anne Patchett, author of eight novels, three works of nonfiction, one children's book, a collection of essays, and the editor of the 2006 edition of Best American Short Stories. She is the recipient of the Orange Prize, the Penn Faulkner Award, the Harold D. Versell Memorial Award for the American Academy of Arts and Letters, the Book Sense Book of the Year, a Guggenheim Fellowship, the Chicago Tribune's Heartland Prize, the Governor's Award for Excellence in the Arts, the American Booksellers Association's Most Engaging Author Award, and the Women's National Book Association's Award. She was named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World, and because all of that is not enough... In 2011, she opened Parnassus Books in Nashville, Tennessee, with her business partner, Karen Hayes. She will be joining us in Raleigh in late October for the final event of the 2019 Arts and Lecture Series, which is co-presented by the North Carolina Book Festival and Quail Ridge Books. And her latest book, The Dutch House, will be published in September by our friends at HarperCollins. Anne, thank you so much for joining me. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah, it is an honor to have you here. And the first thing that I'm going to ask you about is actually your bookstore's blog, for which you recently wrote a post about visiting Sandra Boynton's studio. Um, My three-year-old son, Van, is obsessed with books and with reading, and Sandra Boynton is the first author who he knew by name. Um, So I'm asking you this question for him. Can you tell us what it was like to visit her studio? It was unbelievable. He should be so jealous. It, she works in this converted barn. The barn has a movie theater in it. It has a diner, like a whole real 1950s diner with chrome and red leather uh, booths and the little stools and all of the board on the back that says banana splits and Sundays. She has a jukebox that plays records. The, um, the barn is full of stuffed animals and Boynton board books and things that other famous illustrators had given her and a tambourine signed by Davy Jones of the Monkees. Wow. Um, it, it's just, it's unbelievable. It, it's, it's really the only thing that I could even say that would come close to it would be Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. <laughs> it just, you walk in... And your eye is going in every direction because you're just you just keep seeing. Look, there's an old sneaker with a rabbit crawling out of it. You know, <laughs> it's, it's it's the best. Wow, that sounds fantastic. Thank you so much, Anne. Um, and in a somewhat related question, because this is a podcast that lives in a bookstore. I want to ask you about your inspiration for opening Parnassus Books and what your day-to-day or month-to-month life is like as both an author and an owner of a bookshop. Well, the inspiration was just that the other bookstores in town closed. Mm-hmm. We had Davis Kid and we had uh, Borders, mm-hmm. and they both closed about six months apart. They were huge, and they didn't close because they were doing poorly. They closed on a corporate level, all the borders closed and I can't remember how many of the Davis kids closed, but you know, it was like eight out of 10 or whatever. Um, they had been bought by the Joseph Beth chain 
And so there was this huge void in the community, and I did not want to open a bookstore. I didn't think that I was the person to meet that need, but nobody was stepping up, and I met um, a woman named Karen Hayes. We were introduced by a mutual friend, and we just decided that this was something that we would do together. And I don't work at the store. Karen is the owner-manager, so Karen and I pay Karen a salary, and she runs it and does all the work. Um, And I go in and out, and uh, I do a lot of promoting for the store. I interview authors when they come in. Um, I host events. I I do publicity. You know, I I do my own thing, but I don't stand behind the cash register. But I'm in the store a lot. Excellent. Thank you so much, Anne. I used to be a manager at a large Borders in San Francisco, yeah. and I still miss my Borders family every day. Um, well, our our floor manager Andy Brennan came to us. The, you know, practically the day we opened from Borders, and he had been the manager of the Borders here, and he's the best. Excellent. Thank you so, so much. Borders, borders must train him right. <laughs> All right. Yeah, we love Borders folks. So, um, and I want to ask you about Lamb Slide. What was your inspiration for writing this book, and can you talk to us about the difference between approaching a writing project for children and one for adults? Sure. Well, the the uh, inspiration is both uh, micro and macro. Mm-hmm. So the larger inspiration is I met Robin Price Lasser at the bookstore while she was on tour for the last Fancy Nancy book, Oodles of Kittens. And she asked me if I would ever write a children's book for her to illustrate. I said, no, I don't know how to do it. She said, go home and give it a try. I loved her. We just really hit it off right off the bat. And so I went home and I tried to write a children's book and it turned out that it was something I was capable of doing. And then I was something I was not capable of stopping. Mm. So I actually have written a lot of children's books, picture books. And Landslide was probably the fourth or fifth one I wrote. Um, and the reason that I wrote it, the inspiration, the micro inspiration was um, it was in March of last year, and Connor Lamb had won this 17th congressional district in southwestern Pennsylvania, which is Pittsburgh. And um, there was a picture after he won his election of somebody holding up a piece of poster board, and it said Lamb Slide on it. Mm-hmm. And so I ran upstairs and I wrote a book about a bunch of lambs who overhear the word you'll win by a landslide in terms of an election and they think that somebody said landslide and then they want to know where the slide is for lambs. So it's it's a very gentle uh, little lesson about voting but it's also really more a lesson about consensus building and finding out what other people want before you go ahead and do what you want. That's the first half, but then uh, the difference between writing for children yes, just so much more fun. <laughs> Thank you, Anne. And what about events? What is harder, a reading for children or a reading for adults? Oh, my gosh. I, I have been on book tour since I was in my middle 20s, and I find book tour to be so exhausting and soul-crushing. <laughs> and when 
they asked me to go on book tour for Landslide. I said, are you kidding me? I don't want to have to go on book tour for children's books, too. But the difference is I went with Robin, and I'd never had so much fun. It was fantastic. And it was fantastic because the kids were fantastic, and they were really cute, and they were friendly and ridiculous. And But mainly it was just like I was there as Robin's sidekick. And Fancy Nancy is like Disneyland. You know, it's just huge. And the kids were so excited to see her. And I just pretty much held the chicken puppet and did funny noises. And it was great and loved it. That sounds like so much fun. Thank you, Anne. Um, and one thing that I want to ask you about, and I believe your author introduction to this podcast is the longest one that I have done yet. Um, in 2012, as I mentioned, you were named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World. What was that like for you? Were you surprised or were you like, of course I'm one of the most influential <laughs> no, people I in the world? No, I was expecting it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just couldn't believe they hadn't called sooner. Right. Um, you know, it was a very funny thing because a few years before I was on that list, my friend Liz Gilbert was on that list. Mm-hmm. And when Liz got it, I was absolutely blown away. I felt like I knew the Queen of England personally. Mm-hmm. I just couldn't believe that someone I knew was on the Times list. And then you know, three years later or however much longer it was that, that I was, it may have been actually a bit longer than that. And then I was on the list and I called Liz and I said, oh, this is really no big deal. <laughs> and she said, no, it's really not. <laughs> so um, it was it was just kind of crazy. Um, and it was really fun. And I was I was very honored and the biggest kick is actually if I'm speaking in front of an audience and they're going through the list of accomplishments and reading them off and then they get to, and then she was named by Time Magazine as one of the 100, and the whole audience will go, oh, you know, um, and I, I'm very grateful for that. Thank you very much. It was, it was nice. Excellent. Well, I think it's a very big deal, Anne. Um, speaking <laughs> but someday of someday when you're named, uh-huh. call me, I will and then you're going to be like, "Yeah, actually, it's it's kind of just fun and silly." Yeah, that will be the day. Um, speaking okay. of influence, and as an independent bookstore owner and a successful author who wants to reach as many readers as you possibly can, how do you negotiate your relationship with Amazon? Oh. Um, Boy, that's a good question, um, because I try to have no relationship at all with Amazon, and and I know that they sell my books, and I'm grateful that they sell my books. I mean, frankly, I'm grateful in, in an odd way that Amazon exists. I, I think that the marketplace is big enough for everybody, and there are plenty of cities in America that don't have an independent bookstore, don't have any bookstore at all. And so I'm really glad that people can get books in those communities. And I'm glad they can get my book. Um, But I, you know, other than that, I I just kind of try to stay away from it. I don't want to be a person who simultaneously 
criticizes Amazon and benefits from Amazon. Um, sure, that's so a f- yeah, that's a fair answer. Thank you so much, Anne. Uh, listeners, we are going to take a break for a word from our sponsors, and when we return, I will speak with Anne Patchett about her new book, The Dutch House. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Anne Patchett, author of The Dutch House, published by our friends at HarperCollins. And this book, The Dutch House, is magnificent, and it is surely to be one of the best of the year, at the very least. Uh, there is so much to pick oh, apart. You. You're very welcome. Thank you for writing it. Um, there is so much to pick apart here. The story is told from the perspective of Danny, who lives in the Dutch house, a glass house in some respects, uh, with his father, his sister, and a couple of family employees who are in charge of cooking, cleaning, and general upkeep. And would you like to set this novel up uh, any further for our listeners? Sure. So um, at the end of World War II, Cyril Conroy, who's Danny's father, uh, and is very poor, the whole family, very, very poor, he gets into real estate. He gets a tip about some land to buy, and he buys it, and he winds up making a fortune, and he doesn't tell his family, and he, when he gets enough money together, and he's really rich, and this is 1950 probably, or no, late 1940s, he buys the Dutch house as a surprise for his wife, and it is a magnificent mansion outside of Philadelphia. And uh, the wife is horrified. Mm. <laughs> she doesn't want to live in a magnificent mansion. And from that point, everything falls apart. Now, what I, what I have just told you, that all kind of takes place in the first few pages of the book. The book then covers probably four decades, and it's, it's about what happens to Danny and his sister Maeve and how they live in the Dutch house, and outside of it, but it's it's really about how people hold on to their hurts and the bad things that happened to them when they were young and let those things define them. So even though Danny and Maeve go on to have happy and successful lives, um, they never, never can get over the loss of this house. Thank you, Anne. Um, a question tying into your role as a bookstore owner, one book uh, that I can tell has been mentioned in this novel, and that book is Housekeeping by Marilyn Robinson, mm. which is a book that is um, being read by multiple characters in the Dutch house. What is it about housekeeping that made it important enough to mention in the pages of this novel? That's such an interesting question. Um, 
You know, when I drop a book in a novel, I'm in Commonwealth, um, there's a character who's reading The English Patient, and, uh, and in this book, it's two characters who have been separated for most of their life, and when they reunite, and they're sort of, it's sort of like twins separated at birth, you know, who find each other as grown-ups, and they're talking about all the things they have in common, and one of the things they have in common is that they both love Housekeeping by Marilyn Robinson, which is certainly a book that I treasure, as I think really everybody who reads that book just loves it. Um, but it seemed like the perfect book because it's it's a very, very beautiful book. It's a quiet book, um, and it's, it's not obscure at all, but it's very literary. Uh, there's a certain kind of of woman especially who I think would say, oh, housekeeping is my favorite book. If I met a woman who came up to me and said, housekeeping is my favorite book, I would think, I really know something about you. Mm -hmm. And so to say that these two characters that have been separated and reunited and they say to each other, oh, housekeeping is my favorite book, really it's my favorite book too. I kind of think if you were somebody who had read and loved housekeeping, you would know a lot more about those characters because of that book. So because I'm a bookseller, I'm always trying to sell books. Mm-hmm. Like I can't make it through a day without recommending a book to someone. And so that's just lovely that I think, okay, I know, I put housekeeping in there. I met Michael Ondaje when he came through um, on book tour for Warlight. Mm-hmm. And he was so lovely. He was the nicest, nicest man, and I love Michael Ondaatje's novels. And when I met him, I just thought, oh, I'm so glad that my character was reading The English Patient in Commonwealth. <laughs> That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Anne. Um, in the opening of this novel, Andrea, who is Danny's father's new girlfriend, is standing in the Dutch house looking at a painting of the previous tenants, the Van Hubeks. Uh, can you talk to us about these paintings, maybe the other paintings in the house, and what role you perceive the visual arts playing in the Dutch house? Well, when the Conroys buy the Dutch house, they buy the house and every single thing in it. So the, the, the Van Hubeks died off, and uh, the house went back to the bank, and the bank sold it with everything. So, you know, there was jewelry, there was clothes, there were hairbrushes, there was furniture, there were paintings. This is a very grand house. So the idea of basically starting with a full life, you know, being so poor, again, in the late 40s, there really wasn't an American middle class. You know, you were either poor or you were rich. And the Conroys go at warp speed from poverty to wealth, and they buy the entire package, the whole way of life, uh, turnkey. And one of the things that comes with the house are these ancestral portraits, which is just an interesting idea to me. I, I love portraiture, but I always wonder, well, you know, where does your great uncle go when you die, when there's nobody left to value that person in the painting anymore? So what if somebody buys not just your paintings or your house, but your entire way of life, and the paintings 
really signify that. So they're, they're beautiful and they're valuable and they're important pieces of art, but they really represent the kind of pedigree and family and background that the Conroys didn't have. And then at one point, Maeve, who is the, the daughter, has her portrait painted, and it's painted in the style of the Van Hubeck paintings, and it hangs in the drawing room with the Van Hubeks, and it's sort of their attempt to, you know, go towards an equality. But that is the painting, the painting of Maeve, that's on the cover of the book. Excellent. Thank you so much. And and how about the other arts, uh, ballet, musicals, film? Was it important to you to include all of these in your novel, or is it just something that happened as the story unfolded? Well, the ballet and the film really had to do with Maeve, who is of the next generation. She's Danny's daughter, and she's just one of those precocious kids who is bound and determined to grow up to be a movie star. And so... I was just thinking, if you were a kid who was growing up in New York and you had all of this talent, what would you do? I actually had a friend who lived in New York whose sons all had roles in the Metropolitan Opera when they were growing up. There were just all sorts of artistic possibilities. But then somebody told me the very best thing, the biggest thing that could happen to a little girl in New York is to get into the um, American Ballet Theater which is incredibly competitive, and the School of American Ballet. And so that's what May did. That's the nice thing about having characters instead of children. Mm. You can just say, oh, yeah, I want her to be in the School of the American Ballet. Done. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Thank you so much. And um, I have a question about Danny. Danny, at first glance, is a very self-aware narrator. There's a passage early on in the novel when he says, I was in a crappy mood because of the weather and what I saw is the inequity between what I had and what I deserved. And he goes on to start a sentence in the same paragraph. Because I was 15 and generally an idiot. Um, can you talk to us about Danny's seemingly hyper self-awareness? Um, you know, it's a very tricky thing. Um, obviously, I don't know if he's hyper self-aware. Maybe he is. He's probably as self-aware as I am. I mean, you never really know what another person's level of self-awareness is because you'd have to be inside their head in order to get there. Um, but the the trick is that Danny grows up in this book. You know, he's eight years old, I think, when the book opens, and he's probably 50 when the book ends. And, and he's writing the book or telling the story in reflection. So he is not eight years old when he is telling the story of being eight years old. He has grown. He is not 15 in that scene. He has grown. So you're, what I have to do is find the balance between who he was at that age and who he was when he is seemingly telling this story. So he is saying at the same time, I was in a crappy mood because of the weather, and at 15, I was an idiot. So, you know, one statement really happens at 15, and one statement happens at 50, looking back at 15. And that's sort of the trick of writing a first-person narrative over the course of many, many years. 
Right. And and did you find it at all challenging to write a novel with a male narrator? For some authors, it seems to be not that big of a deal. And for some, um, William T. Volman, who we spoke about before we started recording, comes to mind. They will go to extremes to come as close as possible to experience life as another gender, to immerse themselves uh, in their work. What was the experience like for you? Um, it really wasn't a problem. <laughs> you know, I... I have known a lot of men like Danny, Mm -hmm. and um, Danny is a very affable, bright, successful man who is lifted up on the shoulders of a group of women who surround him, and he has almost no awareness of that. Um, The women can seem... uh, shrewish and exasperated but they and Danny just seems happy-go-lucky and all ease and light and the reason is he's not actually doing the work of life and the women are doing it for him and they're not getting the credit nor do they think they deserve the credit because they all adore him so that really is a dynamic that I could tap into without any problem whatsoever and uh, and I didn't have any trouble writing from a first point of view. Excellent. Thank you, Anne. Um, finally, I have a couple of questions about life in general as related to your novel, and you alluded to some of these when you set your novel up for us earlier. Um, one, are we all doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past? And two, I am hoping you can talk a bit about the folly of holding on to a grudge for a lifetime only to drop it after years or even decades. Um what is it about human nature that makes us do these things, even though we probably know better? Um, I do think that people often let themselves be defined by their hurts and their losses. Um, and, and I think it's because we really seek to define ourselves by something. I can remember once talking to my nephew when he was very young um, in high school and saying, you know, you can either define yourself by what you do or what happened to you, and it's a lot better to define yourself by what you do. And um, I don't think he listened to me, but which is neither here nor there. Uh, but I think that with all the things that Danny and May have accomplished – they really let their lives be defined by what happened to them. And a lot of us do. And, you know, it, it, that's just, it's just something to contemplate. And one of the things that has surprised me is I've gotten notes from early readers who have said, oh, this book really made me stop and look at the old hurts and grudges that I've hung on to in my life. And... Um, and that I should probably let them go. And I think, yeah, it's a great idea to let them go because it only hurts you and it doesn't serve anyone else. And there was a second part, the first part of your question, which I've now forgotten. The first part was, are we all doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past? No, of course not. There are loads of very evolved people who are not doomed to repeat, who 
go forward. I don't, I, don't, I don't know. I don't think we're doomed for anything. I mean, we can still do it, but we do it probably because it's just easier. Excellent. Thank you so much. And listeners, I have been speaking with Ann Patchett, author of the upcoming novel, The Dutch House, published by our friends at HarperCollins. If you're in North Carolina, she will be at the Quail Ridge Books and North Carolina Book Festival Arts and Lecture Series at Meredith College on October 27th at 2 p.m. You can pre-order copies of The Dutch House in store at Quail Ridge Books online at www.quailridgebooks.com and also from Ann's store, Parnassus Books in Nashville, Tennessee. Ann, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. I had a great time. I'm looking forward to coming to Quail Ridge. Once again, I would like to thank Anne Patchett for joining me. Signed copies of her new novel, The Dutch House, can be pre-ordered in-store at Quail Ridge Books and online at www.quailridgebooks.com. I would like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please go to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, to get three months of audiobooks for the price of one and support your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. My name is Jason Jefferies, and this has been Bookin'.